uh, story here, don't we? And uh, if you get out your little sermon out, uh, outline in your leaflet, you'll see a bit of a theme there. It speaks a lot about water and thirst, and we heard a, a great overview of this passage, of course, in our kids' talk. Um, but, of course, thirst. We Aussies, we know a thing or two about thirst, don't we? Uh, especially at this time of the year. And um, many of us, most of us, maybe you, have a favourite drink that you like on a stinking hot summer's day. What's your favourite thirst-quenching beverage? Perhaps it's the most famous drink, uh, soft drink of all. Do you like a nice cold Coke? Uh, Or one of my favourites is a refreshing can of Solo, the Thirst Crusher. The old jingle, I've still got the old jingle from the 1980s stuck in my head. Light on the fizz so you can slam it down fast. Or in his case, down his neck, down on his shirt. Uh, If you're the sporty type, Gatorade might be your thing. Uh, That should be the Gatorade up there, the thirst quencher. But maybe you like something a bit more Aussie, something really Aussie. Because a hard-earned thirst needs a big cold beer. And the best cold beer is Vic. If you're a Victorian, I don't even think they drink the stuff. But last but not least, if you're a true South Australian, it's a farmer's unionised coffee or it's nothing. That's enough of my free advertising. Um, the point is we all have our favourite drinks and we, to satisfy our thirst, we need to quench our thirst with something. And ultimately, of course, we know that it's the water in the drinks that our body needs, right? Um, thirst is our body's way of telling us it needs water. We need water to survive it sustains our life, it sustains all life on earth. Um, so much so that you could almost say water is life. No water and no life. And because of this, sources of fresh drinking water are really precious, aren't they? We know about that in Australia too. And so towns and cities are usually built near them. And this encounter between Jesus and this Samaritan woman took place at one of these precious water supplies at a well. And, and it has a lot, as you heard in the kids' talk, it has a lot to say about thirst, but thirst of a deeper kind, uh, common to all people, and the only way it can be satisfied. And as we consider the story of this woman, we can learn some deep truths about ourselves and some wonderful truths, I think, about Jesus. Let me just pray and we'll have a look at the text. Father God, as we open your word now, we pray that by your spirit you will show us the deep, hidden truths of our own hearts, and that you'll lead us to see the beauty of Jesus. Once again, we pray in his name. Amen. It'll be helpful to have your Bibles open in front of you as we work our way through. The passage um, here from verse 1, it begins with a journey. We heard in last week, uh, last week here um, in chapter 3 that more people were coming to Jesus than to John the Baptist. Uh, he was becoming more popular. Um, than John and we won't spend much time on the details in these first few verses but it tells us that the Pharisees the Jewish religious leaders they've noticed Jesus rising popularity and that Jesus leaves Judea to go back to Galilee where you might remember back in chapter 2 if you've been here he turned water into wine but to get to Galilee he had to pass through Samaria and so down in in verse 5 Jesus and his disciples arrive at a small Samaritan town, Sychar. And it's near some land that Jacob had given his son, Joseph, way back, more than a thousand years earlier. You can read about it in Genesis 33. It's important to note here that Jacob was a forefather 
of both Jews and Samaritans. And we learn here also that Jacob had dug a well, probably on his plot of land, which was now a vital source of fresh water for the town of Sychar. The journey would have taken about a day and a half on foot, um, walking during daylight hours only. And so we're told in verse 6 that they arrive about noon. And they're tired and hungry. And so in verse 8, John tells us the disciples went into town to buy some food, which left Jesus alone by the well. And he's tired from the long journey, of course, as he would be. So he sits down by the well. Tired. Jesus is tired. Ponder that for just a moment. This is the eternally pre-existent word of God, the creator of the universe, who became flesh and dwelt among us. That's how John began his gospel in chapter 1. And here he is, fully God, but also fully human, tired and hungry, just like his disciples. And he's thirsty too. Jesus wants a drink. And so in verse 7, you can see there, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? And whether it's his clothing or his accent or maybe both, she knows full well he's a Jew. And her response in verse 8 is one of total surprise. You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? To help clarify things for his non-Jewish readers, John inserts there, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Because Jews, in fact, despised Samaritans. They saw them as ethnic half-castes, religious heretics and ceremonially unclean. They wouldn't go near them if they could avoid them. They saw themselves far superior, Jews did, in every way. If they had to, they'd buy supplies from them like the disciples have gone to do, but they'd never lower themselves to ask a favour of a Samaritan, and especially a Samaritan woman. It was completely unacceptable in Jewish culture for a man to even greet a woman in public, even a Jewish woman, let alone a Samaritan. But of course Jesus is no ordinary Jew, and she's already beginning to realise it. This Jew wants a drink from a Samaritan woman's personal water jar. Well, Jesus might be thirsty, but he doesn't get his drink, at least not that we can tell. He doesn't ask her again, and he doesn't even respond to the issue she raised, not at all. Instead, he flips the entire scenario around in one sentence. You have a look in verse 10. He answered, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So his response to her is that she should be asking him for a drink of something he calls living water. He's implying that she's the one who's thirsty, not him. And that if she understood God's gift and Jesus, his own identity, she'd ask him for living water. So apparently she's thirsty but obviously doesn't know it. It's a complete reversal of the scene. From Jesus' perspective, she's the one in need of a favour and he's the one who can meet her need. As we can see in verses 11 and 12, she has no idea what he's talking about. But for some reason, she starts to address him as, Sir, sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. 
Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? She's just like Nicodemus back in chapter 3 when Jesus talked about being born again. The Samaritan woman is thinking in purely physical and earthly terms. All she can see is the scene before her, a deep well and a man with no bucket or rope offering her a drink. Whatever this living water he's talking about is, surely it comes from down in the well somewhere, maybe a bit further, a bit deeper down. But what she does pick up on, though, are the two things Jesus said she needs to know. The idea of a gift, Jacob's gift as the well, and the, and the question of Jesus' identity, they both there in verse 12. Jacob gave them the well, so maybe this gift of God, whatever this gift of God, is it the same thing or is it better than that? And as for Jesus' identity, she asks him outright, perhaps with a little bit of sarcasm even, I don't know, are you greater than our father Jacob? And not surprisingly, Jesus, he doesn't answer her question directly, but what he goes on to say absolutely implies that yes, he is greater than Jacob. He says, verse 13, that everyone who drinks this water from Jacob's well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I will give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. In other words, he's saying the water from Jacob's well only satisfies thirst temporarily. You have to keep coming back again and again to drink it. My water satisfies thirst forever. When you drink it, it turns into a permanent internal supply, a spring of water that's welling up or gushing up to eternal life. In essence, he's saying, my water is better than Jacob's, my well is better, and my gift, which is God's gift, is better than Jacob's. So, yes, I am greater than our father Jacob because he doesn't say that but he implies that well the woman is now convinced that she wants a drink of this fantastic water Jesus advertisement was brilliant it's done its job living water sounds awesome and she wants some verse 15 sir give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water of course she wants some of his, his water, some of his. Who wouldn't want it? She's sick and tired of lugging this water jar half a mile and back every day. Always drinking, but always thirsty again. And if we're honest with ourselves, I think that we'd probably think exactly the same thing if we were having this conversation with Jesus. I mean, if you take his words literally, right, there's, how else would you understand them? But Jesus is speaking about an entirely different kind of water, as you already know. Providing, it's a water that provides not life, but eternal life, and sustaining eternal life. It's of a completely different nature. Which means the thirst that he says the woman has, that he implies she has, is of a much deeper nature. It has to do with her soul, with her heart. Her thirst is a spiritual thirst. So she is thirsty, but she doesn't yet know it. She doesn't recognise it at least. At least not in terms of water and thirst that's lost on her. Which is just as well because 
Jesus is about to leave those terms behind. The conversation is about to take a really sharp turn, or at least it seems to when we read it. She does now want Jesus' water, but only to satisfy her physical needs and to make her life easier. Of course, we'd never do that right. We'd never come to God for an easier, more comfortable life. So quite out of the blue, it's so it seems, Jesus tells her, verse 16, Go, call your husband and come back. Why on earth does he ask her that? Does he, maybe he wants to give the husband some as well. Or maybe because she has no idea what he's talking about, he's got a better chance talking to her husband. One commentator actually thought that. No, I don't think it's either of those things. It's because he wants to reveal to her some deep truths about herself and about him. He wants her to see her deeper thirst. Of course, her response, surprise response, is short and to the point. I have no husband. She clearly doesn't want to talk about it. The sudden change of topic isn't, isn't welcome at all. It's raised a very private and painful area of her life. And so she does what I think many of us are inclined to do in similar situations. She tells a little truth to conceal a much bigger truth, the full truth. And Jesus, in his graciously gentle way, affirms her little truth, twice even in this passage, in this um, verses here. But at the very same time, he exposes the whole truth, the very thing that she was trying to hide from him. At the second half of verse 17, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you have now isn't your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. In just a few words, Jesus has revealed painful details of this woman's life. Of course, he's not trying to humiliate her, but he's trying to help her to come her know, to, to know herself and her deep spiritual thirst. She's had a string of relationships with men over who knows how many years, five husbands, and now a partner who's not her husband, but who might be someone else's. She's living in adultery. Before God, she's a sinner. We're not told anything more about the men in her life. Did one of more of them die? Did some of them abuse her or cheat on her? Maybe she cheated on them. But regardless of the details, the effect of a string of romantic and sexual partners on this or any other woman would be profound. In the wake of each failed marriage, would be deep hurt painful memories and lasting emotional scars. And then hope would return as another man came into her life only to be dashed to pieces yet again as another marriage fell apart. All she really wants is to be loved unconditionally, to be secure and happy and content. Surely that's not too much to ask, is it? Surely there's a man out there Somewhere who can love her and who can satisfy her empty, longing heart. A heart that's getting harder as the years go by, harder towards people, including her husbands and lovers, and harder towards her conscience, her sin and guilt and shame, 
and harder towards God. So she's thirsty, all right. She's desperately thirsty. She has a deep, deep thirst. It's a thirst for acceptance and for security and forgiveness and happiness. It's a thirst really for salvation, for a a new life. Life as it should be, not how it is. And she thinks she can find it in a man. So she keeps searching for that man, trying to quench her growing thirst. Of course, she's not the only one caught in this relentless pursuit of happiness. Her story, and this story, is part of God's word to us. And what we learn about her is to teach us something about ourselves. The woman recognises that Jesus is a prophet, um, that he knows absolutely everything about her. And he's, you can see he's steered the conversation gently but deliberately to lay her broken, sinful and idolatrous life bare. And it's uncomfortable for her, but Jesus knows it's necessary. Unless she comes to know the truth about herself and about Jesus, she won't ask for living water. The same is true, I think, for all of us. No one likes having their sin exposed. I certainly don't. And brought to the light. It's not nice. We heard last week in John 3.20 that everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. And this woman won't come to the light. But the light has come to her. Jesus is the light. John 1. The light who shines into our darkness. And she knows now she can't hide anything from him. He obviously knows everything about her. And so feeling exposed and uncomfortable... She really only has a couple of options. She could turn around and go home or she could do what most of us perhaps would do, change the subject. Divert the conversation away from her moral issues onto something else, something obvious. And that's exactly what she does in verse 20. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. You see, Mount Gerizim was the Samaritan's most holy site and it was in full view from Jacob's well. It's still there today, believe it or not. Jacob's well is still there in the shadows of Mount Gerizim. And the issue she raises was a major point between Jews and Samaritans, this issue over worship and where would worship would be. And it had caused serious religious tension, even to violence, for hundreds of years. No doubt at all she expected a strong defence of the Jewish position from this Jewish prophet. Maybe she hoped for a short and abrupt argument and then they could part ways and she could go home. That would often happen, people discussing in this same situation. But Jesus doesn't bite, he won't bite. He won't take up the divisive issue at all. Instead, he diffuses it entirely. He tells her, verse 21, The time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. And though in the next verse he does affirm the, Jewish, the old Jewish place of worship rather than the Samaritans, his main aim is to help her understand that a new era of worship is coming, a time when God is worshipped, see it there, as Father, Now we need to understand the biblical 
idea of worship. It doesn't mean the act of singing songs in church, although it certainly includes that. Worship in the Bible is total adoration. It's to set one's heart on the object of highest worth and to respond accordingly. To think, speak, act and live in light of the greatness of that most worthy object, be it a person or even a thing. And the Bible teaches that all people are worshippers, that we all worship something and that all sin has at its core false worship. And to help, we need to go back to the beginning. The big narrative of the Bible begins with a scene in a garden where the first people lived in close relationship with God, worshipping their creator while at the same time enjoying creation and each other the way God intended. But man rebelled against God's gracious and loving rule and sin entered the world. Ever since then, fallen humanity has worshipped everything but God. And that, as the Bible makes clear, is the sin behind all sins. It's the greatest sin of all, worshipping created things rather than the creator himself, as the Apostle Paul points out in Romans 1. And here's the thing, part of the deep thirst we're talking about is the human heart's desperate search for what it was made to worship. And the other part of that thirst is the thirst for forgiveness and for our guilt to be taken away and our conscience cleansed because we were made by God to worship him alone. And so we have an unseen spiritual void in the depths of our soul, a God-shaped hole, it's been called. And we try and stuff it full of all kinds of physical things of a huge variety. And for some people, like the Samaritan woman, it's human relationships, real or in our imaginations and desires. Our deepest thirst, Thirst is expected to be met in husbands or wives, boyfriends, girlfriends, sex, pornography, family or friends, or in material things, in money, in property, investments, cars, hobbies, all types and manner of collections. It might be success in business, success or career or sport or even ministry or a whole host of other things, power, control, influence over others, acceptance by others, alcohol, drugs, parties, good times, beauty, health, food, comfort. We can even look to retirement to finally satisfy those deep longings. And of course all these things in their proper place are good things, but they're not God. And they'll never, ever satisfy that deep thirst that we're talking about. It's like trying to quench our great Aussie thirst by running down there to Franklin Parade and guzzling seawater after you've stumbled over the seaweed down there. It just makes matters worse, right? Seawater doesn't quench your thirst. It just makes you thirstier. And so we become frustrated, angry and resentful or even depressed. But the thirst won't go away. Anyway, back to the story. At this point, the Samaritan woman is still fixated on physical things, as she's been the whole time. And she even thinks that worshipping God is about going here or going there. It's about places. But Jesus wants to tell her about true worship. Verse 23, Yet a time is coming and has now come 
when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. So true worship, he says, is to worship God as Father. And because God is spirit, worship is to be a spiritual matter. And so it's only possible through the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the promised Spirit of God from the Old Testament, the living water who unites people to God. Jesus tells her this new era of worship is coming, you'll notice, and has come. It's a bit confusing. It is coming and it has come. But he leaves it a mystery, to her at least. We know that it had come for her because Jesus, the true temple, the true place where man meets God, was standing or sitting right in front of her. And we know that it was still yet to come for her because he hadn't yet gone to the cross where he died and rose again to reconcile sinners like her to the Father. But he does tell her that the Father is seeking worshippers to worship him in spirit and in truth. Is the Father seeking her? Does he want to make her his child? She'd have to be wondering at least. So her thoughts are suddenly drawn to the one great hope of Samaritans and Jews alike, God's promised Messiah, the one the scriptures spoke of, of a great prophet like Moses, a great king like David, a suffering servant who would die for the sins of other people. She may not have known that all of the scriptures pointed towards Christ, the Messiah, Samaritans apparently didn't, But she does know that Messiah was the great hope for herself and for her people. And so she says, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. We don't know for sure if she ever did drink from Jesus by believing that he was the Messiah. The last we hear, she's seriously asking the question in verse 29. We're left hanging. And I think one reason why John doesn't tell us and leaves us hanging is to cause us to think deeply about our own response to who Jesus says he is. Are you thirsty? Maybe you're not a Christian and you've never come to drink from Jesus by believing in him. Or maybe you're a believer, but rather than drinking from the spring of living water you already have, you've been trying to quench your thirst elsewhere from other fountains that never satisfy. The living water Jesus offers is the spirit of God, the spirit of Jesus. To drink from Jesus is to drink of Jesus. He's the gift of God. He's the one who brings eternal life and salvation. He's the one who wants to bring you into true worship, into the family of God, as beloved children of the Father, of his Father. And he stands before you today through his word and by his spirit and he says to you, I the one speaking to you, I am he. 
I've dealt with all the consequences of your sin and idolatry when I died on the cross for you. You don't need to be thirsty ever again. Come and drink from me, he says. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for the wonder of your love. Such love that you would send your son into the world to take on human flesh, to be a man, to save us from our sin and our idolatry and our rejection of you and our worship of everything else, our idolatry. Thank you for what this passage tells us about this woman and about ourselves and our tendencies of misplaced worship and trying to quench our thirst anywhere and everywhere except the only place it can be um, satisfied in Jesus, in you and in a true worship. So Father, take your word and work it deep into our hearts and bring us to see that the only place we can ever have that deep, deep thirst quenched is in Jesus, by drinking of him. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.